0: Hey everyone, this is your host, Guns, and welcome to another episode of the Sea table Podcast, where we make sense of what is going on in European technology, or at least we try to. My guest today is James Clark. James is a London-based marketer with a somewhat unorthodox job. Marketing director for a publicly traded venture capital fund, Draper Esprit. Before joining Draper, James worked in London Stock Exchange as head of tech and life sciences, helping entrepreneurs all around Europe successfully launch their IPOs. And before I get into my usual rundown of the topics we discussed, a small disclaimer. James and I are not financial advisors and don't play one on the internet. What we talk about does not constitute in any way, shape or form as financial advice. And now that that is out of the way, today's conversation was absolutely riveting. James and I cover a whole bunch of topics, including why James took a marketing job at a VC firm, the importance of having an outsider perspective, the key advantages and disadvantages of a publicly traded fund, why VCs should look at themselves as businesses, not just investors, how COVID impacted Silicon Valley and drove investment to Europe, and much, much more. So without further ado, James Clark. James, thank you so much for coming on the Seat Table podcast. How are you doing today?
1: I'm pretty good, mate. It's, uh, it's, it's gray and cold outside, but I'm, I'm pretty comfortable and I've got a cup of coffee, so I'm doing well.
0: Well, it's warm and sunny outside here, so uh, <laughs> let's dive straight into it. When did you realize that taking a marketing job at a VC firm was a good idea?
1: Well, I've been, I've been working in venture for, well, in and around venture for nearly 10 years now. And uh, I guess for me, it was I've always sort of seen a marketing role in a venture firm as something that was possibly a bit underserviced. I I thought that there was potential to to fill out what marketing could be in a venture firm. And, you know, the industry has been changing over the last decade a lot as well. And so around the same time, I was thinking that there was a need for this. The industry itself has matured a lot and has become more competitive. And so therefore, you know, obviously along with deal flow and quality of investments and performance and all that other stuff you know, that's that's crucial to venture capital, marketing started to become a potential source of, source of differentiation. So, yeah, I, I have to say I'm <laughs> I'm one of the few people working in venture who never really had an intention of working in venture capital, or maybe I did. Maybe I did coming out of MBA, I was massively keen to get into it and whatever else. But I guess the more that I worked around the people I admire as VCs, the more I realized I operated differently from them. And I'm kind of one of those people, if I do something, I want to be really good at it. And Knowing the people that I know, I was like, "Look, I'm a different sort of person to that person. I couldn't do stuff the way that they do it." And so, therefore, I really like the industry. It's I'm I'm kind of a student of the industry, and it's and it's what I'm passionate about. But the the role of being an investment on the investment side of VC kind of I became less appealing towards me, and I actually became more interested in well, okay, what is the stuff that I'm good at? What is the stuff that I think I could contribute that's different to the industry? And that's kind of that was where the thought about our marketing, doing marketing my way, became an interesting way to look at the venture capital industry and the roles that could be out there.
0: So, in two thousand and sixteen, when you hosted the market opening ceremony for, for Draper, did you yeah. ever imagine you'd be working there a few years later?
1: Uh, look, it's a funny one. Well, I met I met Stu and Simon in about two thousand and twelve. So I was working at the British Venture Capital Association, and Stu and Simon were both involved. Stu was on a number of, number of committees, and we sort of we got to know each other then. And sort of I guess over the years that I'd stayed in contact with them and you know, Draper Esprit was one of, well, back then it was DFJ Spree, was one of those those firms that you sort of heard about and stuff was happening and whatever else. And I guess I sort of kept an eye on them. And then, you know, I was at London Stock Exchange and I saw the, the regulatory notice come through that the Draper Spree was gonna IPO and I'm like, what the hell is this? I mean, partially because you know, this was Draper Esprit listed like a month after Brexit. So you know, it was, I think it was from memory, I was, so my job with the stock exchange was to to work with tech companies to help them IPO. And so this was very interesting to me, but it was literally a month or so after the Brexit vote. And I think Draper is possibly the first IPO since Brexit. And it was, it was a bit insane. And I was like, wow, this is an interesting <laughs> thing for a venture capital firm to do. I didn't expect it to, to happen. I was, I was delighted to do it. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a huge admirer of both what Simon and Stuart have done. And so, something that I always enjoyed was hosting IPOs for people that I'd gotten to know over the years and to sort of see that, 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 you know, the, the bell ringing ceremony, although they don't have a bell in London, that, that, that ceremony is always sort of that big recognition of this is where you come from and this is where you can go from here. And so hosting that ceremony for them was, was, yeah, it was, it was an honor every time I did it, but it was a specific honor because I admired the work that they'd done with the, you know, that they created with, with what Draper is free had become. So it was, a surprise i was sort of delighted to be involved and, and yeah it's sort of i'd stay obviously i'd stayed in touch with them you know stu, stu Chapman is a bit of a mentor of mine and so i had been in regular touch and we talked about things we might be able to do together in the future and yeah he sort of he reached out to me towards the end of last year and asked me if i was interested in taking the role and i was like well oh, that's okay that's really interesting okay let's let's talk about what we could do with that
0: you're essentially a marketing guy who spent the last decade maybe yeah getting very involved with VC as an industry. So you're at this unique intersection, right? It's like sort of an outsider slash insider uh, yeah. that others probably don't have. And you, you mentioned that you sort of think and operate differently, that venture sort of capitalists, can you break that down for me? Like, why do you think you operate differently? And what yeah. do you think those, those advantages are?
1: So I think, I think people, the people who do different jobs. Have, as as they sort of work through their early part of the career, they they, they build a mindset that is related to their job. So so my, my my wife is a lawyer, right? She sort of, she thinks like a lawyer does. She thinks about risk. She thinks about mitigation. Th- she thinks about those sorts of things. And I think the way that a marketer thinks, if you're doing your job well, a marketer should always try and be the outsider because, look, if I'm trying to market my company to, like, let's say I work for, I don't know, I've, consumer company right let's say i'm I'm making uh washing powder right i need the the thing i need to do most is to think about who is going to buy my washing powder and why should they buy it and i should really be thinking about the people who buy more washing powder right and there's a temptation anytime you work in an organization to become really passionate about what the organized organization does and the the product they produces but the risk of that is you become so passionate you, you lose touch with the people buying the washing powder And 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 it's a sort of a thing, I think, in in venture capital. I'm I'm really keen about and I really like what the industry does. I do think it makes a big difference. It has its controversies and whatever else. But I think that you need to be able to view it with an outsider's point of view to be able to help outsiders understand it. And I think that's the marketer's mindset is, you're the outsider always looking inwards or vice versa. And so I think that that aspect of things of being a marketing guy in venture capital is, You know you you look at okay well how does the industry currently do its marketing how do i think it could be done better what 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 shortcomings are there what things could i add to it what things would i want to talk about more Uh, and look at like anybody who sort of is who who sees an industry as a slight outsider you look at the ways you think it could be could be done differently and that's that's kind of what i think i bring to it
0: yeah yeah and your job is is very interesting so maybe Sort of break it down a bit for for me but i'm sort of for my background is in growth as well so i'm very curious how do you measure whether you're successful or not
1: Uh, that's it look it's a tough one i think venture capital by and large is it is measured in terms of performance of investments right we look at the companies in venture capital that have been successful and they're persistent over a lot of years but also the the your performance as a venture capitalist doesn't come straight away. I mean, I I ra- if I'm a normal VC, I raise a fund today. We can't really say it's been a successful fund until 10 years' time or or more, right? And so therefore, your your the 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 typical sources of venture capital success are incredibly far into the future. And it's one of the reasons why you end up with, you know. The, the actions you take today become the decisions that seem to be so, so resonant 10 years time. You see zombie funds, you see all these sorts of things, because it's very difficult to measure the performance of those sorts of funds, given, you know, the nature of venture capital, which is all about, you know, performance over time. The, the thing about the, the marketing side of it is, is that, you know, you can either, you can start a fund today and, and hope that in five or 10 years time, your investments start to bear out. Or you can take actions today that hopefully give you some sort of an advantage until those numbers come through. You have to believe the numbers are going to come through and you work with, you know, you work with investors and Draper Esprit's got some fantastic investors and doing awesome deals. But but the work that they're doing today, or the work that we've done in, you know, historically, it, it comes through slowly. Uh, and Draper Esprit's historic track record is solid. But you're, you're trying to make sure that that is being highlighted as much as possible or if or if you're a marketer in a in a new fund, what can you do today that's gonna move the needle so that when your numbers actually come through, you can kind of go, Well, we thought we were gonna do this as well. So you're you're trying to do it's it's like, you know, it's you sort of it's not product market, it's 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 brand marketing and you need to bring the the brand the brand into alignment with the product itself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of that is storytelling because At the end of the day, like the Draper story from Marketing Sense is is very unique because Draper is not just any fund, right? It's publicly traded and sort of a bunch of other stuff, really, or being publicly traded allows you to do a bunch of very cool stuff. So maybe let's lay the foundation for the audience and sort of walk us through the Draper story and then why it's interesting.
1: So Draper Esprit is about 15 years old. So the founders, Chew and Simon, sort of spun out of existing funds. I mean, look, they, they've been doing this sort of stuff since the, the original dot-com boom or before. So, so it's interesting during, the, during the, the COVID crisis, being able to tap that kind of knowledge and understand that, OK, it's not just your frame of reference isn't just the financial crisis, it's actually the dot-com boom that came before that and it changes things. But they, they've sort of been knocking around for for, for many decades. Doing venture capital investment uh, before they sort of spun out and they founded what was a spree back then, and sort of you know as as the business grew they, they sort of saw some opportunities. They partnered up with with DFJ in the US to become DFJ Spree, um, and then sort of the the DFJ sort DFJ broke up itself, and so therefore partnered with Tim Draper, and that sort of being the origin in a very very short sort of fifteen years. <laughs> there, there, pretty a, good job. <laughs> there's A lot of detail that goes into that. And the, the, the sort of firm has grown over time. But if you sort of look at it, the, the sorts of companies we invest into, the stage we invest into, we are very much a sort of, you know, series series A plus. So sort of not the early stage, eventually sort of get in a little bit later. You know, the, these sorts of things are all about where do we think we can make the most impact in sort of the life of a company. And the, the listing was part of that. It was, you know, it was realizing that at this stage, you know, raising private capital, Everyone was struggling with it, especially at the later stages. But it was also a realization that, you know, we we work in an industry where, you know, companies do stay private for longer. And the ability of public investors to access the growth of those companies has fundamentally changed. You know, when, when Amazon IPO'd in 97 or whatever it was, it was a $350 million company, right? So everything from $350 million up to whatever trillion it is now. All that value was captured by public market investors, you know, pension funds and mum and dads, and you know all that, you know, all those people, all those organisations could participate in that growth. You look at somebody like Uber, and Uber IPO to what is it, 80 billion, something like that, and they they've dropped a bit since then. So the, everything from early stage through to that 80 billion, all that value was captured by private investors. Now there's some of the, you know, some of those are pension funds, and they, you know, participants have done very well, but it's a very close pool. And it doesn't allow very much access. And I think, you know, there was, there was a few things that were going on. When the sort of listing, the idea to list came about and part of it was, okay, well, there's these pools of capital out there in in, in the public market space that we think would be interested in investing into an entity like Drake Bruce but also we invest into companies when they hit their, the greatest stages of growth. You know, they, they grow the fastest and the hardest from series A up to IPO or up to you know around that sort of a stage and so therefore if we can be investing into companies at that stage and we are a traded publicly traded company then investors can hopefully access that kind of thing too and you know that's the sort of thing that we're trying to deliver so there is this i shudder to use the word democratization but there is this democratization of that growth stage of venture capital because you're increasing the number of participants who hopefully can benefit from you know the decisions that our investment team are making so that was sort of that was the origin of it, but then sort of subsequently it, it, it allows different ways of doing investment, and this is where I think gets really really to the interesting side of it, which is, you know, the venture capital model hasn't really changed very much in the last fifty years. I mean, I, I did a I did a piece of research uh, while I was at the Bridge Venture Capital Association called VC Evolved, and it was looking at the evolution of the venture capital model from 1999 to 2014, and you know. There was some stuff that had been happening most of that innovation was actually driven by the companies that the tech vcs were int- you're into. you're investing in India. think about how aws meant that companies didn't have to have infrastructure which meant that vcs were investing into people rather than infrastructure or whatever else all that sort of stuff was going on and you had the innovations like Andreessen and horowitz bringing in you know this sort of idea of a of a sort of a mckinsey meets venture capital and smash the two of them together and see how you can provide benefit for your portfolio companies but It still is fixed and closed fund. Yes, there have been the odd evergreen, but most of the orthodoxy is you do a closed end 10 year model, you raise the capital, you deploy it over three to five years, you harvest it later on. It's very fixed and it works very well for what it does, but it's also very inflexible. So let's say there is an opportunity to do secondary investment, right? You see it happening. You need to go out and raise a fund. To be able to do secondary investments because chances are that hasn't been included in your lp agreement when you raise your original fund so there's an opportunity you have to go out and raise those those funds it might take you six months it might take you a couple of years right that's how long it can take to raise those sorts of funds it makes for, for a not very flexible kind of kind of sort of uh business dynamic yes you're still able to invest in those businesses but you can't move very quickly because you have to build a thesis. You have to then go and convince LPs of that thesis. You have to raise the fund, then you can start to invest the money, right? And there's that 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 window in time where that isn't, where you sort of you're restricted on what you can do. Now, Draper Esprit also does secondaries. We do secondary of funds and we do fund of fund, right? So we buy individual assets if we like to. We buy entire funds outright, which is what we did with C camps one and C camp one and two. And we can also do of funds that we invest into 15, probably more now, VC funds across Europe as an LP investor into those sort of seed and early stage funds because it, it, it supports network. And we're able to do that because, and we're able to do that without needing to go back to our investors to raise more capital. If we can find a rationale and it, it is going to increase our balance sheet and it's going to create a return for our investors, then we have the freedom to be able to do that. And so that's that's what we do today. We have, you know, our, our, our funder funds, Fund of fund structure has got seventy five million or something like that invested across Europe so far. We've done you know investments into whole secondary fund of funds like like we do with Seedcamp, but we also do the odd asset here and there as well. Because if we see an opportunity, we can make use of that opportunity, and that kind of adaptability is something that just doesn't very work very easily in traditional venture capital.
0: Why not more funds do this? Because it seems that it gives you like. Superpowers, in a sense,
1: as in IPO, right? Well, yeah. So, well, I mean, as I say, the, you know, you have other, you have other funds that do secondaries every now and again, but it tends to be a, a single asset here and there. Look, IPOing is a difficult thing to do. I mean, I, I remember I was actually, yeah, as I mentioned, I was working at the stock exchange at the time the pretty pre-IPOed, and we did get a number of calls from other VCs, look, saying, look, how how can I do this? Yeah, can I do this? this? Looks really interesting. How can I do it? And you know, we'd, we'd do the usual thing, we'd have a chat with them, we'd make some introductions to various different banks to help them go through that process. And very, very few, I think, you know, Augmentum it listed sort of not too long after, and there's been some talk about some others recently, but it's a really hard game to play. And the reason it's hard is for a number of reasons. Firstly, to, to, to list successfully, you need to have a good track record, right? Draper Esprit has a track record that goes back 15 years and our sort of, our yeah, you know, the, the the sort of our annual target return on investment is, is about 20% sort of 20% annual growth, which if you're a closed end fund would be 20% IRR or something like that. So that's the sort of target that we, that we go with. And we have sort of a historical track record going back even when we were private, that was something like that. So you need to be able to show public market investors that consistency and the ability to do that. So it is tough for first time funds. You, if you don't have first-time funds, you need to have people who have a track record that public markets are familiar with, which some people have been able to do, and, and that kind of works. The other thing that becomes kind of hard, though, is size does matter. So Draper Esprit passed the billion-dollar valuation a couple of weeks ago, but but you know when we started out, I think we were 100 million or so when we listed. And that, that makes certain things kind of hard because obviously you have regulatory disclosures that come with being a listed company and you have various aspects of market abuse and market abuse regulations you need to try and abide by. And so the, the usual thing of, you know, company your VC invests into a new company, goes out to the media, works with a journalist to do an exclusive, all this sort of other stuff, then it lands with a big sort of, with you know, with a big exclusive and the story bursts and all this sort of thing. You can't do that because... You're, you're actually would probably, you know, you probably that in, size of your investment is probably material to the size of your overall market cap. And so therefore, you're potentially open to accusations of market abuse if you work with a journalist to be able to launch that story. So you have to, you, you know, you have to abide by the rules and make sure that when you do some sort of an announcement, it goes out to the market at the same time as everybody else. And, you know, that sort of thing makes a difference. So that's that's one factor. And Draper Spree is now big enough that we don't have to be too concerned about it. Other stuff comes along, which is a bit more specific. So, you know, one of the things that in public market investors look for is they look for the ability to return money into the fund. And obviously it's difficult for uh, a smaller size fund, which is sitting on great assets. But, you know, paper assets are good, but public market investors like to see money returned to the fund. So you need to have a sufficient flow of capital. And a sufficient inflow and outflow to be able to make great investments into companies and then hold them as long as you absolutely have to at the same time as being able to return some money into the fund so the investment community can see that it's it's not just all you know paper and smoke and mirrors so you have to be able to mix these sorts of two things together and again once you get to a certain scale then you're always it sort of becomes a flywheel you have money coming into the fund you're doing secondaries you're doing divestments you're selling down assets every now and again you're making new investments you're holding on to companies for the for the best time you think you can you have the odd exit happen in the portfolio and these are these things tend to come with scale and so that that sort of' it's, it's sort of only been in the last couple of years that draper spree has definitely hit its stride with that sort of stuff but it's a it's a it's a tough game to play from those sides of things and then the last thing is it's it's it, it can be quite complicated to you know, one of the one of the jobs we have to do as a, as a publicly traded VC fund is we have to educate the public markets about the nature of why venture capital is different as it as an asset class so you know an example of that might be you know during during coronavirus right during the, during the first lockdown you know a typical asset manager is going to be moving money to mitigate risk so during during coronavirus you know certain kinds of assets become you know very sort of risky so you pull your money out of them and you put them into another sort of asset. So you're mitigating your risk by moving money around to protect your your own investors and make sure that they're getting a return. And that's how you mitigate risk. Venture capital doesn't do that. You know, during the lockdown, the first time around, you know, our investment team worked their guts out, spending months working really closely with board portfolios, working with all those companies to try and put them in the best possible position to, to either ride out what was to come or to benefit from what was to come, and that was, you know, that was really, really substantial level of work. And look, the upside of this is that, you know, after all this work, a company like AirCall is able to do a three hundred million dollar round in the middle of the lockdowns. So that you are—that's the way you are mitigating the risk and providing a potential upside for investors. So you're, you're, you're—it's a very different from a typical asset manager. But you're trying to explain that to to public market investors and it takes a bit of time. And, you know, obviously there's, you have to work with them and help them understand the venture capital industry and understand that tech is not just about throwing stuff at a wall and seeing what sticks. It's, you know, incredibly deep of understanding uh, about the investment areas that we go into. And that's what drives the investment decisions we make. So yeah, it, you're sort of, we're having to forge a path for others to follow and maybe they will, but it is a, it's a tough sort of thing to do and And not many could possibly do that, I don't think
0: absolutely, absolutely, one of the sort of going back to the superpowers thing I mentioned, mm-hmm. which might be a bit silly, but it's sort of my mental model for it um, <laughs> one, of, one of the things is you mentioned the situation in which a fund might have the opportunity to invest in like some very promising secondaries, mm-hmm. but it would take them six months or maybe two years to raise yeah. like this special vehicle to 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 go yeah. and sort of play in those secondaries now. Draper has the ability, and they've done it recently, to raise a bunch of money very, very quickly. So what's the story behind that 110 million pound raise in a few days?
1: Yeah, so look, I mean, look, part of the story here is it's it's, it's many years of building trust, right? Like, like with those sorts of things. But it, it's a case of, you know, we were in a position coming out of the summer where we thought there was appetite in the market for us to go out and raise some more money. And so we sort of spent about a month or so through September putting a proposal together because we thought, you know, look, let's, let's raise some money. There's an opportunity to do, do so here, obviously good to have, you know, more capital to invest. We had some, you know, we, we had the exit from, from peak games that was announced in the summer and we had some other sort of returns coming back in. So we'd have obviously firepower, but, but having more capital to invest at a time when, you know, late stage investments are drawing most of the interest. And that's where they, you know you need to be able to your you know follow on your investments. It just made sense to us to have that that dry powder, yeah, you know, the equivalent of our dry powder. It made sense to have that. And so therefore, there was interest in the market, there was requirement, we knew how we were going to invest that money, and you know, the opportunity was there. So all those things kind of lined up, and then it was a matter of, okay, well, the opportunity is there. Do we go ahead and do it? And that sort of that was the, the blog post that I wrote about this, which was literally Everything came together at a board meeting on a Monday night. And then by Friday morning, we'd close the deal, announce the funds and the funds are transferred and all that sort of stuff. And, and it literally happened in a three-day period. Now, again, one of these sort of superpower aspects of being a public company, you know, Drake has a reasonably large set of infrastructure underneath it. we have got a finance team, we've got a regular a legal team, we've got a marketing team and all these other sorts of things. Because what happens in that fundraising is, as opposed to a normal VC fund where typically, especially in a smaller size one, the, 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 the partners, you know, the GPs are the ones going out, raising the capital and expending the time to do that. Our investment team didn't get involved in the in the raise at all. So that was the finance team, the legal team, ourselves in marketing, you know, burning the midnight oil to get stuff done, and especially the finance team. While, whereas the investment team could focus on doing deals, working on their boards and all that sort of other stuff. So that sort of that aspect where the support part of the business, which is what I, you know, proudly think that the marketing team's, you know, acts within, is is helping create, create the opportunity and the firepower for the investment team to go out and do the deals that they need to do or work with their portfolio companies or whatever else. And it, and it's, you know, it there we did it under those reasons because we saw an opportunity for that. But yeah, it could be, you know, we might be, you know, let's say a company wanted to raise half a billion dollars or something like that. If we could find a rationale to getting into that deal theoretically, we could go and do that. I mean, we raised £110 million pounds this year. We did about the same for the last four years. So that's close to what, probably about sort of half a billion dollars in the last four years. And But there's no reason why we couldn't increase that cadence if we saw demand, or there's no reason why we couldn't increase the amounts if we saw demand. I mean, we were oversubscribed this year, so we theoretically could have, but we decided not to. But there's no reason why you can't do it that way either.
0: I bet it was a fun week for you and your team. <laughs> did Did you ever sort of have any doubts that you could pull it off this quickly, or?
1: Um, I think it's one of those things where you do it when you think you when you think you can do it. So I mean, it, right. it, it's it's like a lot of stuff on public markets. You'll see, um, you know, I remember back at the stock exchange, there were occasions when an IPO was pulled because the market didn't, you know, market didn't support it. We we had enough. Insight through our brokers and various others, and you know, interest of investors that we knew that we could, that we knew well, pretty comfortable we could pull it off. It was just a matter of you know, could we get it at the price we were looking for, and and all that sort of other stuff. And in the end, yeah, it was the raise was oversubscribed. We got it at a slight premium to to, to mid market, so actually we we didn't have to offer a discount, and and it got done really quickly. It was it was it was a good race. Uh, so we we were yeah. pretty happy with it. But it is it is one of the aspects of being a public company, you know. You don't have to take months to do it. If you see an opportunity, you can just go and do it.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Now, <laughs> I'm picturing you at the board meeting after making the decision with a clock and saying, go, <laughs> and it's sort <laughs> that, of... Like...
1: To be fair, the, the, the listing is, it is very much the finance team. I mean, we, we the marketing team helped out in terms of, you know, pulling together, you know, pitch proposals for investors and that sort of stuff. But it, the, the, you know, the, the this is the, the legal team and the, Actually, the other stuff, we had to get our our website updated, you know, within about sort of 12 hours because there was some stuff we we needed to have. So that stuff, but it really is the finance team and the legal team, incredible workload to turn that sort of stuff around. And they just, you know, they're they're amazing the way they do it.
0: Credit to them. So we've been briefly discussing the evolution of, of venture capital now in this podcast and in sort of a couple of private conversations we had before. And you, one of the sort of the ideas that's on your mind that VCs themselves are becoming businesses. Can you break that down for me and sort of what the, or how do you think this will play out over the next couple of years?
1: Yeah, look, I think one of the really, like, one of the things that attracted to me about Draper Esprit was it was a business, right? It functions and operates like a business. It's, it's founded by entrepreneurs like a business. I'm not going to go into the, you know, where founders like the founders we back and whatever else, but I think that can be a bit trite. But I think that, you know, it is definitely a business and it has to be run like a business and ultimately by making what are quite interesting business decisions draper spree has put itself in a position to benefit from viewing things a bit differently and i think that that sort of you know one of the one of the challenges for venture capital more widely is everybody realizes they're investing into these great businesses and we do too but It'd be interesting for VCs to look at their own firm as a business rather than a collection of individual investors or partners or whatever else. It seems a bit like a law firm in that kind of way. It's a lot of people not necessarily working in a coordinated way. And I I think some of the stuff you see, especially at at early stage, you're starting to see VCs think about themselves as businesses in a different sort of way. I think it's partially because, because early stage is so incredibly competitive people are having to think differently about how they go about doing what they do. And I think that these sort of slightly different ways of doing the model, I mean, yes, most people are still doing closed ended funds or whatever else, but how do you, how do you work the carry and how do you, you know, do you involve your portfolio in the return on the carry and all that, so, you know, as some people are doing, I think that stuff is quite interesting. But you know, I think that you know, venture capital would benefit from seeing itself more as, as a business area and as being a set of competitive businesses and the fact that it, there are things it can do with its own model to create competitive difference. I mean, because all that we're really doing is we're taking money and investing it into great companies to help them grow, right? That's, that's all, like, that's what we do. Where we get the money shouldn't really matter. I mean, apart from the incentives that grows, but where, where the money comes from shouldn't matter so much. How we structure our organizations shouldn't really matter provided it's in, it's in tune with, this purpose of investing into great companies and getting a return. Now, most of the time, I think VCs run very light. They should, because they're trying to maximize, you know, the value of the carry and, you know, all that sort of stuff, and that's fine. But it sort of, if VCs looked at what they were doing as a business, rather than just, I'm here to service other businesses, they would probably come up with more interesting ways to do it, because ultimately they're just trying to support entrepreneurs as they grow. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Sort of like, I don't want to say every fund, of course, but many funds have this sort of this limited mindset. Okay, we're a fund. This is how we operate. This is how we'll operate over the next decade. This is where we'll raise our next fund instead of just thinking as a startup, right? One of the, like, I think this was a sort of tweet or something that most venture capitalists wouldn't invest in themselves if they had to sort of analyze the fund as a startup, right?
1: Yeah, well, look, it's funny. I mean, the it's interesting, the way that I got to this idea about venture capital and marketing was I used to work in advertising, right? I worked in advertising for the first decade of my career. And the old joke about advertising was that, you know, advertising agencies were not very good demonstrations of their own product, right? <laughs> uh, everyone saw themselves as what's, a, what's your differentiation? Oh, we do better creative. But that's what every other shop says they're going to do. And you're all named after the same people. Yeah, there was this, there was this same sort of thing. And, and venture capital is a bit... Is a bit the same sort of way. I mean, look, what is it you're offering? And everyone, oh, proprietary deal flow. But everyone says they have got their own proprietary deal flow. Yes, but we've got an algorithm. But everyone else has an algorithm, and it's it sort of there's sort of there's there's ways we can probably do this sort of stuff better. And I think, look, I I hope that we're part of that doing stuff a bit better. But you know, you, you need to take risks to try and to try and make that sort of stuff come about.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you yeah, think?
1: Because I think, look, I think. The analogy I use about this sort of stuff, and I'm going to, if you're a football fan, I'm going to use a football analogy, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. We we all know that the returns in venture capital exist on a power curve. So a couple of people, a couple of funds right at the top get almost all the returns. And then there's a big long tail that gets very thin where a lot of funds don't return any money. And the funny thing is that that model of a few funds making a lot of money and then a lot of funds being underwater and not returning the fund, looks a lot like european football where there's a few clubs that make all the money and win all the trophies and then there's a whole huge range of clubs that don't make any money don't win any trophies and are just sort of plugging along and and sort of the analogy for me is you know everybody tries to play tries to play like like barcelona but not everybody has the team or the capabilities or the resources to play like barcelona So, therefore, you can either, and and sort of I'm I'm a Tottenham fan, so you can take this with a grain of salt, but my my major criticism of Arsenal as a club is that they've always tried to play like Barcelona, but without necessarily having the players or the resources to play like Barcelona. And the second that Arsenal plays against Barcelona, the, the difference is very stark. So, you can play, you can try and do what Barcelona does, or you can try and play in a very different style of football, and that's more likely to get you a chance of winning the trophies. And I think... You know that that there's an aspect of venture capital which is like that everyone sees the, the the firms that are doing incredibly well and tries to do the same thing as the firms doing incredibly well thinking if i just repeat what everything that that firm is doing eventually things will come my way in time but the thing is returns like football trophies are persistent they keep accruing to the same people because they've got that advantage
0: yeah, it's this sort of cargo cult thinking, right? Like everyone thinks that because they can draw like like cool charts, they're gonna be the next Ben Thompson, and the charts is not what makes strategy, right?
1: Yeah. Well, look, and I, I think it's every like I think one of the one of the challenges again. Take this from a marketing guy with a grain of salt, right? I think part of the challenge of venture capital is it's a it's a it's a it is product people viewing the world through a product lens, which is if I make the best product. Then the world will beat a path to my door and i will be shown to have the best product but time and time again in industry the best product doesn't always win i mean yes best products do have an advantage but they don't always win and i think that's kind of it you need to how can you craft what you're doing differently so that your product has a better chance of succeeding
0: what do you think is a good framework to get out of your own lens right so the like product people see the world through a sort of product lens marketing people see the world through a marketing lens which is essentially like an outsider you were mentioning lawyers and i was having the same conversation with my girlfriend i was saying like most lawyers have a sort of thanks to litigation and stuff have this sort of zero sum lens like everything is i win or you win so do you have any frameworks for sort of getting outside your lens and seeing things from a different perspective
1: i think um you, you have to start with a basis of my view of the world is my view, but I guarantee that the rest of the world doesn't see the world through my view. And my job is to try and find out what that is. So yeah. You're, and so you, you're always, you're always subordinating your view of the world to something else and I don't know you know, and, and it, if you're a selling washing powder you subordinate your view of the world to the washing powder consumers of the world if you're a venture capitalist you subordinate your view of the world to entrepreneurs or to not just entrepreneurs but the, the, the people that buy the products of those entrepreneurs you know you, you have to you obviously you have to look at total accessible market and all that stuff but what about that total accessible market that's going to make this this product or this this startup more more appealing and I, and I think that's the thing it's you always have to subordinate your own view, and be suspicious if your own view is what you think is the correct view. And I think that that's probably. I don't know what happens after that, but subordinating your own view is probably a pretty good place to start.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think you, you you put it perfectly. Like you should always be suspicious of your own views, hmm. right? It's hard, right? It's it's hard to sort of, it's hard to start by thinking that you're wrong.
1: Yeah. I mean the other way to look at it is why, right? So look, anyone who's followed me on Twitter knows that I'm very, very happy with my own <laughs> views. And, and I'm <laughs> very, very shy about sharing them. But that that that's sort of like there's a difference between Twitter and that, the approach that I bring to the work that I do. So, you know, we did a we did a marketing campaign for, for Draper and Spree back in the summer. And it was sort of, I don't know if anyone's done a marketing campaign for a venture capital firm before. I don't know. We we it was one of those sorts of things where you're like, well, no one's ever done it. Is there a reason why no one's ever done it? Well, I can't think of a reason why no one's ever done it. Then let's give it a try. And you know, it it worked, you know, it it worked with the metrics I, I can't share, but we have metrics about what we're measuring and it worked pretty well. So it's sort of a case of you subordinate your own view and then you, you try and ask why stuff happens. And yes, I have my views, but at the same time, I look at certain things within our industry and I go, well, why is that that way? Why, why do we do it that way can, can somebody explain to me why we do stuff that way and you know in my case I look at marketing stuff and I'm sort of typically looking around going, why, why do we do stuff that way is it because we think it works or because we know it works and if it you know if it if we think it works are we are we measuring that and if we're measuring that are we, what are we measuring it by and you know asking those sorts of questions and I mean look I for me it's it's very much the start of a journey I there's lots of questions I have I have to ask but I haven't actually got around to asking them properly but that's the thing is you you have to subordinate your own view you don't you don't assume that because other people have done stuff it's the right thing that you should do
0: i was going to leave this question to the end but you since you mentioned twitter then let's let's dive into that a bit yeah. what's what's your mental model of twitter
1: i was actually chatting with a with somebody i know about this the other day and his question was look you know you use twitter a lot how can i how can I write tweets that get more engagement? And I said, don't for, for me, Twitter is it, it, like, this, this sounds incredibly pretentious. So I apologize in advance, but you know, look, there are people who write music because they want to sell records. And there are people who write music because they, they just want to, they want to express themselves. And I write, I do stuff on Twitter because it's a way of sharing a little bit of myself, expressing a little bit of myself, letting off steam or, or engaging with people and, and sharing knowledge or whatever else. If I get some engagement off the back of that, then then fine. I mean, look, I've been doing, I've been on Twitter for 11 years and I've got 5,000 followers, which is not an incredibly high rate of, 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 of <laughs> growth, right? But I don't care. Like if, if the right people are finding my tweets and find them interesting, then that's great. If people don't want to follow me, then then that's fine as well because you know we've we've both learned something. <laughs> we've both learned something in that process. But ultimately the, the mental mode is, you know the, it's I'd say it's sort of seventy five percent interesting, twenty percent you know, sort of argumentative, and five percent just just plain surreal and silly. And I think that you know, <laughs> there should always be a place for surreal and silly because especially I mean, look, especially this year of all years not being able to catch up with people as easily just to let off steam and and twitter has been a way for me to connect with people and to to stay engaged i mean my my, my dms have just i really really wish twitter would create a standalone app for dms because it would absolutely be the most incredible messaging service out there. because the dm the, the contact list i have out of dms does not reflect any of the other contact lists that i have on on whatsapp or my phone or anything else i think i think but, it, but for me, it is, it is engaging with people and it's about sort of learning stuff in the process and occasionally le- letting off a bit of steam.
0: Yeah, totally. I was just speaking with a friend, yeah. actually, on the podcast about the same thing, that there's this sort of separate social network or separate world that runs on Twitter DMs. Uh, and you're not sort of, that conversation is probably the 10th one I've had on the topic. What do you think some of those conversations are happening privately instead of publicly?
1: I, look, I think there's topics being discussed on DM that you wouldn't say in the open. And look, let's look at it this way: most of the people that I've met through, most of the people that i met through Twitter have been people who've engaged my my mind and my intellect on some level. Right? That that's that's probably the thing that separates Twitter from all the other social networks that I use. Partially just because you know I use Facebook for friends and family, and WhatsApp is friends and family and whatever else. Twitter is people that I've met who I have no, generally no physical contact with, or I've not had physical contact with, but I've engaged with them at an intellectual kind of level. If you think then about it is, what are the intellectual conversations you can have in private that you can't have in public, right? So there's the coffee shop versus, you know, the, the, the separate conversation. And, and for me, DM is, there's a lot of the sorts of conversations you don't feel you could have publicly, and I'm not going to talk about now. Um, but there's also, so there's also there's just a lot of background stuff so it's you know for me I, I work doing the comms for for draper or spree so that's the easiest way for a journalist to get in touch with me is via dm and then we'll flick it over to email because that person does not have my email address and so that that sort of thing works easily and the other part of it is it's just there's this pure efficiency thing like I, I had this idea a year ago I'm sure somebody's done it but it was an idea for a social uh, sorry for a messaging app that basically took the most used messaging service or email service or contact service from you and routes it to the most used and emailed (laughs) for me. So let's say you prefer using WhatsApp, but I prefer using, using Twitter DM. It'll take your WhatsApp message and convert it into a Twitter DM for me and vice versa. If I use DM is the fastest way to get in, get in touch with me. Usually Uh, it's actually one of the few things that I have like notifications that both, both make sound and, and vibrate. So that is the fastest and easiest way to get in touch with me. And, and that's the, I think that's the other part of it is, you know, what, what, what messaging service actually pings you when, you when you get a message? And at the moment for me, it's Twitter DM. So that's the other part of it is just the most efficient way to, you, to get in touch with people.
0: Yeah, that's where you're so quick responding to DMs. <laughs> yeah, I,
1: I Twitter, WhatsApp, email, everything else. I don't get notifications. Or if I do, they're, they're silent. But with, with DM, I actually get them.
0: Yeah. So let's switch lanes a bit. Um, before Draper, you you were at the sort of London Stock Exchange. Yep. And one of the things you did was to partner up with Atomico for yep. the early versions of the State of European Tech Report. Yep. What are some of your favorite memories from that time?
1: So so Bryce and Tom have, were friends of mine for some time back. In fact, Bryce was doing the comms for Draper Spree when they IPO'd. So we've, oh. <laughs> we've known each other for a long time before that. And I met Tom um, when I was – there was a brief period in 2015 where I was head of marketing for an Austrian tech company uh, and Atomico were looking at them and I met – I sort of got in contact with 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 Tom around that time. Atomico wisely passed on that investment, so probably a pretty good move and that was part of the reason why I didn't end up staying with them for very long. But I met – so I met those guys before then. Anyway, so Tom kind of called me up early in 2016 said, look, we were looking to add public market data – to, to the state of European tech do you think the, the stock exchange would be interested and I went oh, actually I could see the real the real benefit in this I mean a lot of the stuff that I did at the, the, the British venture capital association was you know industry research around trying trying to create more knowledge in, about a, an area that was pretty un, misunderstood and pretty opaque um, and so from from my point of view adding public market data to what what atomico were doing there was genuine like a genuine industry benefit to that because it would create us, you know, create more enlightenment. It was also helpful because the stock exchange was trying to engage more with the tech industry and there was some good branding around it. And ultimately that was sort of, that, you know, we were able to bring the, the stock exchange into an agreement and we, we partnered up with them. And look, yeah, know, there, there, there's, there's a few things. I mean, the first the first time we, the first sort of report we did together in 2016 because it was Bryce had just started with Atomico and it was his first big sort of, his big, big first big moment for me, he completely nailed it. And the report just started to grow and I think that it was, you know, there was stuff that we found in the data. So, you know, some of the stuff that we found was was completely unexpected. And and I've always been somebody who said, you know, you, my thing is all about, you know, check it, check the data. And one of the biggest misapprehensions the tech industry operated under was that, you know, all the good, all the tech companies go to the US to IPO and the US has more tech IPOs than Europe and all this sort of other stuff. And there was, I think it was about 2018. When we pulled the data, we are like, do you realize that for the last four years, nearly five, Europe has had nearly double and increasing numbers of tech IPOs compared to the US? So I think it was by 2018, Europe had twice as many IPOs in the five years prior, compared uh, tech IPOs compared to the US. So discovering this kind of data that completely turned on its head what everybody thought about what was happening with tech in Europe. And using the public market data to do that—that that was that was you know that was really exciting because we were digging stuff out that absolutely no one expected, and obviously Tom's pulling stuff out from the research that they were doing. But being able to use public market data to completely change people's minds about it was really a revelation. I, I was really proud of that kind of work. What's
0: something that you did expect from sort of the trajectory that European tech uh, has been on for the past few years, but when you started? Sort of working with Atomica in 2016 on the early versions of the report. I
1: think I think it was you know we have seen a lot this year about how or, sorry the the news story this year is about how US investors have discovered Europe right. It everyone knows that it's been happening for years. It's just you know certain large US investors named after trees have set up here recently. So <laughs> it, 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 you know it, it this has been happening for a long time and it's been obvious for a long time. I mean that what you tend to see is that. European tech entrepreneurs, you know, the talent and capability are, are evenly distributed around the world, even if money isn't, right? And so it was only a matter of time when you'd find that the US realized their, their deal their deal was so overpriced that they would start to look at Europe for a source of better deals. And lo and behold, they have. It, you know, COVID and sort of the, the reliance on Zoom has accelerated that. But it was, you know, it was just a matter of time before that sort of stuff to become, became really noticed. And obviously it's become more noticeable this year, but it, it was, you know, you can see it in the the, the, the valuations of European tech companies have been increasing at each of the round stages to, you know, they'll, if this, if sort of, if, if, if we keep going the way we're going, this will end up being, you know, the, the round sizes should actually, there should be no arbitrage. It should be completely even around the world. And with a plug to my previous research in 2014, I wrote about this. Um, this was this, so in the VC evolve piece there was, a, there was a prediction for the future. I, call, I called it awfully. It sounds terrible. I called it planet tech. Uh, and the sort of the, the 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 insight was the sources of inspiration are global. So we all read TechCrunch. We all read the same journals. We all read Ben Thompson. You know, it doesn't matter if you're in Mumbai or if you're in Sao Paulo or if you're in you know San Francisco or London. We all read the same sources of inspiration, and we all model ourselves off the same companies, you know, they're they the, the benchmarks that we set ourselves apart. The, the the early stage, back back then, you had the likes of 500 startups and various others who were traveling around the world. Um, I called it you know VCOP, which is you know OAP, which is VC on a plane. The early stage of these, were starting to you know that was where the competition was. They were starting to travel around the world, and money was money was starting to be distributed. And obviously, there was a big boom in. You know, a lot of the stuff around ICOs and stuff around crypto was was chasing this same kind of thing, which is talent is evenly distributed, but money is not, and that's where the arbitrage opportunities are. So it happened first in early stage, and then it's gradually moved up, and now obviously late stage money travels as much as possible, and all that sort of stuff. And I think you know the the, the last thing, the last domino that that, that collapsed was was meetings and and the sort of the physical distance part. You know. the the sort of aspect that silicon valley vcs set up there because that was where the talent was and then over time they became a a vacuum for talent so it's not that there was more talent in silicon valley by by origin yes there there was but actually huge amounts of talent went to silicon valley because that's where the money was so money yeah silicon valley ceased to be a, a cluster of technology it became a cluster of capital right and so that was sort of that was the geographic advantage but then what COVID has shown us is geography matters less than being able to win deals. And so people have gotten over their hang-ups about travelling around the world to do these sorts of deals, and they're willing to get on a Zoom call to do that. So, you know, the capital is 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 international. The inspiration and the knowledge is international. The trends and the types of technology international, because by God, you know, the, the infrastructure is international. And the last domino was this aspect of of... Of the you know of distance and geography when it comes to meeting people and, and getting comfortable with those sorts of deals.
0: Yeah, COVID is probably one of the f- uh, worst things that could have happened to Silicon Valley, and maybe one of the best things that could have happened to Europe. Um, well, yeah,
1: it it, sort of, <laughs> it, it it means that you know it Silicon Valley has its own sort of hangups and its own its own irrationalities, and they've they've been able to coexist for long enough because. Everybody had convinced themselves that you know everything was there that needed to be there, and there was nothing that wasn't there that should have been there. But then I think you know I'm not going to say that the whole VC's leaving Silicon Valley because of politics or whatever else. It's just I think that enough things have become apparent in a short space of time that people are like, well, okay, there's plenty of other stuff that I could be looking at. And you know credit to the credit to the to the to the you know the, the Silicon Valley visionaries who started coming over. And you know there was a lot of a lot of deals done prior to 2015 even. But I think for me, the, the watershed year for, for, for the UK and I guess London was when the start of the year when DeepMind got acquired by Google for half a billion. And at the end of the same year, TransferWise raised money from Andreessen Horowitz, but they didn't move to the Silicon Valley and Ben Horowitz joined the board and was happy to get on a plane to come to board meetings. Those two things happening in the same year were kind of like you know I remember I was involved with the tech scene at the b v c a back then and it went from being you know I think there's something kind of here to yeah there there definitely some does does appear to be something going on here that was that was sort of for me two thousand and fourteen was a signal year it was the watershed yeah,
0: the inflection point absolutely absolutely um switching lanes one more time um if you had one advice for marketing people want to intersect uh with the venture world, what would that be?
1: Look, I have to say the first 10 years of my marketing career were, were, were not spectacular. (laughs) I worked at a lot of good agencies and I did some good work and I worked for some, for for some clients and whatever else I think that, but I, I, what I did develop during that time was sort of the, the understanding, like a strategic understanding of how marketing and, and brands can work. That that was the sort of thing that got imprinted in my mind, but I wasn't, I wouldn't say that I was a, what are you, what you call a high performer. Um, for me, well, I did an MBA in 2010 and that sort of was a one-year course and that, that completely changed the tra- trajectory of my career. But I, the, you sort of, it's helpful to develop a deep category insight into one industry and it's, it's okay to surf around a little bit when you're a bit younger, but at some point you have to develop a specialisation. And I think for me, weirdly, really, I don't know why, it's just strange. I became fascinated by the industry of venture capital and the sorts of things that it did in tech. Um, and so it was, I think that was the thing. It's the more you develop an industry insight, and the more you can retain that outsider's view, so you can figure out where the where the inconsistencies of that industry are, then that provides you an opportunity. It's it's really not that different from somebody who turns to entre- entrepreneurship in their thirties. They worked in industry for long enough to know where the business opportunities are, but when they go out and do their own thing, they can attack that opportunity. And, and go and win, it, win a huge market, you know, a huge marketplace. And I think that's the thing: it's knowing an industry well enough to realize where the inconsistencies and opportunities are, and then figuring out a way to try and make that work. But I, I got to say, there was definitely not a linear path to how I got here. It was, it was, you know, it's sort of I call it, um, you know, the first part of my career was very linear: was you pick a career and you go upwards, working your way up the ladder. Whereas the second part of my career, from from post MBA, was about Branching probabilities. So you pick, you pick one path, and that opens up a range of other paths, and then you pick another path. And so it's all about transferable skills and all that sort of stuff. And there was, you know, the the opportunity for Draper came around, but it was effectively eight years in the making, and it put me in a great position to hopefully really do a great job now. But it, it was the the decisions I made along the way were I pursued things because they seemed to be interesting and they gave me the ability to deepen my knowledge and to sort of do stuff that was intellectually interesting and things happen. <laughs> it sounds, it sounds <laughs> but things happen. Yeah, <laughs>
0: Things happen. That's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, James, for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure.
1: Cheers. Thank you very much for having me. I, I hope I didn't bore you too much.
0: <laughs> hey, this is Gonz again. If you enjoyed this episode of the Seat Table podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeedTable.com. SeatTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.